0: good morning. Um, I was quite excited when I found out we were doing 1 Corinthians because um, so far whenever I've talked on Sunday morning here, I've been asked first to do Psalms, which I know a little bit about, and then twice on revival, of which I know next to nothing about. And now 1 Corinthians, oh, like, ooh, I know stuff about that. <laughs> I was quite happy. Um, 1 Corinthians is a book I've taught many, many times, and not for a while, but Um, I used to teach it a lot, so I was quite excited, like, yes, get to get into 1 Corinthians. It's one of my favorites, and so I'm glad we're doing that this morning. Um, So we're looking at 1 Corinthians 8, and so what I would think I would do to begin is actually read it to you, because it's only little, and so we can do that. So it's 1 Corinthians, all of chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols... The father from whom are all things and through whom we exist and one lord jesus christ for whom are all things and through whom we exist however not all possess this knowledge but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled food will not commend us to god we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, so before I look at this chapter, um, I thought I'd blast you with a bit of background. Um, What's all this food-offered-to-idols business that Paul is talking about? Um, It's not something we come up against in our society much today. Um, We don't go to Asda and worry about whether the steak has been offered to any idols or not. It's not something that pops into our heads. Though I did spend some time in New Zealand, and I did hear when I was out there that um, because obviously one of their major exports is lamb, and one of the biggest um, kind of markets for lamb is the Middle East, that actually, because New Zealand sells a lot of lamb to Islamic countries. Um, just to make it simpler, they decided to change their entire abattoir system so it actually is properly done in the, what's the word? Alla. Alla. Yeah, way. And so in a kind of way, all lamb from New Zealand is kind of offered to Allah, which is interesting. I don't know how true that is, but I thought that's probably the only kind of um, modern example we may come up against. Um, so, but we don't usually come up against this problem because so, we're dealing with a very different society in the Roman world, idolatry was an everyday part of life. Um, gods and goddesses ruled every aspect of their day. Full, Their lives were full of ritual. I think we, we now have this kind of mentality that you do your normal work, you do your normal life in the week, and then you have a special day that you go and do religious stuff. That's the kind of what most people think. You, know, you go on Sunday, then you do your religious stuff, then Monday to Saturday, it's your normal life. Well, it wasn't like that for the ancient Romans and Greeks. Um, there wasn't like one special day for a religion and six special days for secular stuff. It was, religion was every part of life. Um, all days involved sacrifice, all days involved rituals, all days involved some kind of worship. Um, and this is one of the reasons because every aspect of life had some kind of connection to a God. Um, when you have a system where you don't have one God, you have many gods, those many gods have different functions and they have different spons- responsibilities. Um, and so, every time you get involved in some part of life, there is a God for that. There's a God who's in charge of that, in charge of work, in charge of food, in charge of rain in charge of light, in charge of anything you think of, there's a God involved somehow. So for your your average pagan, in Corinth at the time, seven days a week was religious. Seven days a week was some kind of ritual, some kind of offering, some kind of connection with a God. You couldn't escape it. Some examples here, some photos. This is is a photo of... um, a monument that was, that was found in a trade guild, so a merchant, a business place. And this was... It actually shows a banquet by, of business people with Zeus, Apollo, and Artemis. So literally having a business lunch with their gods. Um, and so this was, this was what you would do. Um, most major trades had a god that was kind of like uh, the, the patron god of that trade. And so if you were involved in a certain trade, you would go to the temple of that god who's associated with your trade, and that's where most business deals would be done. So now, nowadays, you have business lunches. Well, they had business lunches in the ancient world, too, and they had business dinners in the ancient world, too, but they had them in temples. And when the trades would meet in larger groups to discuss things, they would do it in a temple. It wasn't just trade. There were no real kind of... um, You couldn't book out the harvester to have a large meal to celebrate your birthday or or some kind of family gathering. (laughs) Thank you, Jenny. Um, Family, it's okay. (laughs) Family gatherings, family celebrations would also often take places within temple. They were big places that you could gather lots of people and everyone was aware of, and they, and they offered this service. Um, also, kind of social, political, um, big civic festivals that affected everybody, they would be in or connected to temples. All of these things involved food somehow. And what would happen is, you would go to these temples, eat the food, and obviously, the food in those temples would be, have been dedicated to the god of that temple. Um, so when the meat was when the animal was slaughtered, it would have been offered to that idol, offered to that god. But often, especially when you think of big festivals, a lot of the food wasn't used. It wasn't all cooked, it wasn't all eaten. So the temples would sell any leftover meat in the marketplace. And that meant if you went in ancient Corinth to the marketplace um, to buy some steaks, it's highly likely at some point in that steak's life, it had been offered to some god at some point, in in some way of the process. Now, it might not have been, but you could never tell. Because there would be a lot of meat in the marketplace that had been offered in a temple at some point. So you can see, this is not this is not necessarily talking, Paul is talking about people who are actively going into a temple and being a part of some kind of pagan ritual. Food that has been offered to idols could be eaten in your own home. You just don't know. Because it affected every part of life. Now, Corinth was a very mixed, um, pop- the church was very mixed. You we read about there are lots of rich, important people in the church, but there are also lots of poor people in the church. Um, you know, this is why you have this one. This is why we have that wonderful thing about Paul, about the Lord's Supper. It's because there were problems in the Lord's Supper in Corinth, because all the rich people were getting there, treating it like a normal banquet and stuff in their face, and the poor people were getting nothing. Um, so the reason we have that great thing about the Lord's Supper is an argument between rich and poor people in the Corinthian church. Um, And they would would have had two very different problems when it comes to food being offered to idols. For the rich, they were the ones who were most likely to have business lunches in temples. They were the ones most likely to be involved in trade. They were the most likely to be involved in kind of civic festivals or social gatherings. They're more likely to come across this problem. In their everyday life, considering their peers and what they did for a living. And many people think it's actually the rich in the church of Corinth are behind this whole, it's okay, we can do whatever we want kind of idea when it comes to this. Because it's going to affect them the most if they start to say, no, you cannot eat this food. They're the ones that are going to suffer the most, the rich people. Or be inconvenienced the most. For the poor, well, the likelihood is that the poor didn't really eat much meat. You know, we, are, we are incredibly rich today. Even poor people today are incredibly rich, and one of the reasons you can tell this is they eat meat regularly. If you go through history, majority of times, poor people don't eat meat because meat is expensive. And so poor people don't have that as a regular part of their diet. And this was true in Corinth too. The poor in the church would not have had meat as a regular part of their diet. So most of the time, this problem wasn't an issue for them. Because they couldn't afford the problem. But throughout the year, there would be big civic events. There would be big religious festivals. Um, One of them, you've heard of the Olympic Games... Well, Corinth used to hold the second biggest games in the Greek world, the Isthmus Games, which was almost as big as the Olympics, almost as famous. And they held it every two years. And that would be a big cause for celebration. And there would be um, festivities going on throughout the type of games. And that kind of occasion would be one of the few chances in the year that poor people had access to meat. Because they could join these festivities and they could eat meat. Um, so their problem is if if you're not allowed to eat food offered to idols, then they're probably their one or two chances in the year they get to eat meat is denied them. So they both have two very different problems when it comes to eating this, this food. There's one more other piece of background I'd like to talk to you about. Um, throughout this letter, Paul seems to be quoting somebody. Actually, if you read it through, most translations now will have a lot of things in speech, speech, like quotation marks, sorry. And one of the ideas is that Paul is actually quoting them back at them. Because I think when, when John started this series, he told you about that actually there's a whole series of letters involved. There's not just one and two Corinthians. There's at least two other letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and there's letters that they wrote to him. And 1 Corinthians is partly written as a reply to a letter that the church has written to Paul, asking him a lots of questions. And it may be that these quotation marks throughout the letter are things that they have said to Paul in their letter to him. And one of the reasons people think this is because oftentimes, Paul then says something to contradict it or to correct it, or to add an extra piece of information that maybe they need to know. It's like, you say this, but I say this to you, kind of thing. Some examples. At the beginning, you get them talking about all, the, all their favorite teachers. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Cephas. That's the Paul is quoting them. One of the big things that comes up throughout the book is this All things are lawful. The idea that you can do anything you want. It's probably not Paul saying that. It's actually them saying that to Paul, which then Paul then corrects. Another quote could be, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is for food. The basic idea of that is, if you get hungry, it means you need to eat. So it's basically, you follow the desires of your body. It's natural, just do it. And there seems to be an idea in the church that they're quoting at Paul. Another one, 7, in chapter 7, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There was a group in this church who were kind of very extreme aesthetics, and they refused to involve any sort of pleasure, even if they were a happily married, I don't know, well, I suspect they weren't a happily married couple, even if they were a, a, a couple, they were refusing to sleep with each other. And Paul is basically saying, don't be silly. Back at them. Um, There's a few of them in this chapter. All of us possess knowledge. This is probably something they're saying to Paul. An idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. This is probably things that they have said to him that he's then quoting back at them. Um, Later on, it is improper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered. That's probably something they've said to Paul, which Paul is then correcting. 12.21, another big issue in this letter is spiritual gifts and how you use it. And they had a very arrogant attitude to what they considered lesser spiritual gifts. You know, like helping people and working and doing stuff like that. They were all into the higher spiritual gifts that made them look spiritual. Another one, it's quite famous, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I doubt Paul said that because he talks about women prophesying and speaking in church all the time. Um, So they are probably saying that to him, which he then corrects. And then at the end, they are asking him questions about how the resurrection works. How are the dead raised? What kind of body do you have when you are raised from the dead? So these are kind of times where they they are asking things of Paul, and he is quoting back at them and correcting them or helping them. Some people actually think they're not asking questions of Paul. They're actually challenging Paul. And they're trying to correct Paul. Anyway, but chapter 8. It begins with now concerning food offered to idols. This is a direct question that they have asked Paul. We have this issue in our church with this meat, this food that has been offered to idols. What are we to do about it, Paul? So he's he's answering a question, a problem that they have. And they've obviously said, probably the rich people have obviously said to Paul, we know that we all possess knowledge, and one of the things we know is that idols don't exist. So therefore, Paul, don't you agree that we shouldn't worry about this thing? So we rich people can carry on having our business lunches and our social gatherings and so forth. What Paul does is use their words back at them and says, yes, all possess knowledge, but knowledge on its own puffs up. It's about, the, it's about the individual. What we should do is love, and love builds everybody up. So basically saying, yes, you all have knowledge, but how do you use that knowledge? That's the challenge that he throws back to them. An idol has no real existence. There's no God but one. Again, Paul this, agrees with them. Yes, you're quite right. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. I agree totally with what you're saying. God is the source of all of our life. He is where our existence is in, and same with Jesus. I agree completely. But not everybody fully gets this. There will be people in the church who may be in their former life, before they were a Christian, were heavily associated with pagan worship and idolatry, maybe more than other people. For them, idols are still real. Apollos, Artemis, Zeus, whoever they are, are still real beings, real gods. Yes, they believe in God. Yes, they serve Jesus. But they still believe in the existence of these other gods in opposition to Jesus, So for these people who still have a major hang-up and problem with this kind of behavior, for them to have any association with that old pagan world is to be disloyal to Jesus, to their new God. Paul actually describes them as weak. They have weak consciences. They don't quite get it yet. And because they have these weak consciousness, for them, even to be partly involved with these kind of rituals, even if it means just eating meat, if it has this connection with idolatry, for these guys, that's going to be a sin. Even if it isn't actually a sin, for them it is, because their conscience will tell them what you're doing is wrong, and then they will feel guilty, and then they will kind of make themselves down, that kind of thing, and go into that circle that any sin will get you into, will would be exactly the same for them. Paul doesn't think the actual food is going to actually harm them. He says, we are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. So actually, this food that has been offered to idol has no power over the Christian. It's not going to affect them. It's just meat. You can eat that steak and you'll be no worse off or no better. It, It won't matter. But for Paul, the problem isn't as such the freedom to eat this food or not. For Paul, the problem is the way people are using this freedom. The problem is the abuse of the freedom And how that freedom can be used to hurt other people, whether intentionally or unintentionally. He tells them, yes, you have a right to eat this meat. There's not a problem. But you need to be very careful how you use that right. You are free to eat, but be careful with that freedom. Did that move? No, it didn't. Come on. There we go. And he explains it like this. If you, strong Christian, with your fine conscience, who knows that this meat is just meat, and these gods don't really exist, if you, in this, in this knowledge, if you go and eat this meat, and you are seen by those who don't agree with you, who think that this is very act is a sin you're going to cause confusion in that other brother or sister. Those with the weaker conscience, they might think, well, maybe I should be involved too. And they might eat the meat. And then afterwards, they might condemn themselves. They might just start feel guilty. Oh, no, I've done wrong. Oh, no, I'm disloyal to Jesus. Oh, no, I've partaken with the food of demons. And so on and so on. He's basically saying, in that situation, the freedom that the strong conscience Christian had actually condemned and hurt the, the weak Christian. Those are the weak conscience. I mean, he's just using weak in the manner of conscience as, as an example. Not, I don't think he's saying better or worse Christians by using that, but just the conscience. And so, by actually using this freedom in Christ you are making your brother or sister sin, and you are therefore sinning in Christ by being free. And Paul's conclusion to all of this is, if by eating any type of food, I will cause my brother to stumble, I will not eat that food. And that's his conclusion. But the real... It doesn't end there. This is where I have to kind of go slightly out of my slot that I've been given. Because the actual answer to this conclusion is in a bigger picture. Answer to this problem, sorry. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a unit. They're all about the same thing. They're all about this issue of food being offered to idols. And we know this because... Um, in chapter 9, Paul does not start saying, now concerning this that you told me. In chapter 10, he doesn't say, now concerning this issue. It's not until chapter 11 that he says another now concerning. And he moves on to a different topic. So before that, he's still actually talking about the same topic. And in chapter 8, it's it's, chapter 8 is talking about, yes, you are free to eat this meat but don't let other people stumble in doing so. In chapter 9, he actually starts talking about himself and his own freedom, his own rights, and how he lays them aside for the good of other people. Then in chapter 10, he goes back to this food offered to idols problem and says, yes, you are free to eat, but think about it. Should you really associate yourself with idols? So he kind of returns, but this in the middle is this laying aside of rights idea. Paul actually gives an example of this, laying aside your freedom that he's asking the strong conscience Christians of Corinth to do. He says, "I'm not asking you to do something that I don't that I, ha- I don't do myself. Let me show you how I do it. I am your apostle. I started." No, Paul, he's, I am your apostle. I started your church. I have authority over your church. I'm responsible for your church. That means I have certain rights. One one rights he mentioned is the fact I, I have the right to have a wife, and I have the right to have a wife who travels with me, like Peter does. And, you know, I'm right. I'm I have the I have the right to have have a normal home life, if you say, if you mean. But the other thing he focuses on is not that right is that actually I have the right to get paid. He started the church. He worked for it. He put lots of effort and time. He was there for, I think, 18 months he stayed in Corinth, forming this church, and then went back and forth a lot of time afterwards. He actually, one of the things he says, if we have have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you too? He says, He's put so much into the church, he has a a right to get something back because he's poured so much in. But he never did. He never asked for anything from this church. Paul and his team were never materially supported by the church in Corinth. They were by other churches, but not the church in Corinth. For all the time that they were there, they paid for their own expenses. When their own resources ran out, they started working to pay for their expenses. They didn't take anything from the church. They refused anything from the church. Because Paul wanted everything that he gave the church in Corinth to be a gift. Because actually what he was doing in that is actually teaching them a message in their culture about the value of people. And how they didn't respect teachers if they worked for a living. Um, they only the respected teachers who get paid for teaching, not for doing other things. So he was actually trying to break something within their culture about value. And he did that by refusing to get paid. So he had a freedom. He had a right which he lay aside for the good of the church in Corinth. He knew it would be better for the church if the church never gave him anything. So he never asked for anything and never demanded anything. And then he says, now he's saying that you people in Corinth, you should do the same. You have a right, a freedom to eat this meat, to be involved in your city, to do these things. But for the sake of those who are weaker among you, you should lay aside this right. At times, when it's appropriate to lay this thing aside in order to protect your weaker brothers. And in chapter 11, he goes back to the main topic of food offered to idols, and he gives a load of examples of how, in the Old Testament, whenever the Israelites got too close to idolatry, it ended badly. And Paul's advice is, stay away. Flee from idolatry. Or even the connection to it. Because, yes, they're not real. Yes, Zeus isn't real, Artemis isn't real, Apollo isn't real, Apollo isn't real, sorry. Um, but even so, should you associate with them? Pagans believe these things are real. They worship them. They offer them. They're evil. They're offering to demons, he says, by doing so. Why should you join them? You may be free to do so, and it won't affect you in any way, shape, or form, but why should you? Yes, you are right, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things will build up the church. Some things which you are free to do may actually hurt those that are around you. And his actual conclusion to the whole problem is this. If you go to the market and you buy some steaks, Don't worry about it. Take them home and eat them. It won't affect you, whatever. Whatever history of that meat is, it's not going to affect you. It's not going to change you in any way. You will no be better off or worse off. It's just meat. Don't worry about it. If you go to someone's house and they feed you meat, don't worry about it. It's just meat. It won't affect you either way, better or worse. Just eat it. But, If, during the course of the meal, your host tells you, oh, all of the meat has been offered to Zeus, because I am a loyal Zeus follower, and so on, then that is the time to make a stand. Then say, oh, in that case, I'm awfully sorry, but obviously that Corinthian was very British. Um, I'm awfully sorry. I do apologize. (laughs) I do apologize, but I can't eat your meat anymore. And then make a witness and a stand saying the reason is. If that's the case, then make a stand. Or if you know you're going to eat something and you're in the presence of somebody you know who has a problem, or might have a problem, then don't even bring the subject up. You know, avoid it. Avoid the meat. Don't eat it just for the sake of your conscience around you. But, like I said at the beginning, it's highly unlikely that we are going to get involved in any meat offered to idols. Uh, We won't really have this situation. But I think this kind of situation comes up all the time in other aspects of life. What is freedom in Christ? I think Paul is arguing, not just here but throughout this letter, that freedom in Christ is not... Freedom to do anything that you want. If we are are going to follow Paul's example and ultimately Jesus' example, the freedom they choose is the freedom to lay aside freedom. The right to lay aside rights for the sake of those around us. Being free to think about other people before we do things. Not to be a slave to your own desires or your own rights. But whether those desires and rights will actually affect people or how they will affect people. Throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul keeps on coming back to two topics. Two reasons that will guide people's actions. The first is witness. If by doing something... Are you going to affect the witness of the church? Will that action, will that decision affect the way the outside world perceives the body of Christ? And the other topic he keeps on coming back to will it make your brother or sister stumble? Will that decision, will that action actually hurt those around you within the church? And the consistent thing that Paul says, if the answer is yes to any of those two things, you do not do them. You choose the freedom not to affect the witness of the church, and you choose the freedom not to let your brothers and sisters stumble. Yes, you can do those things, but the question is, should you? Yes, you can do those things, but the question is, Will it hurt anyone around? What will the effect be? And maybe the right decision is to lay aside that freedom. That's after all what Jesus did for us and what Paul did for the church in Corinth. So to finish, I'll let Paul give the final words, his conclusion to this whole section. So, Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I do like the way Paul was so confident in his relationship with God. He could actually say, copy me. I wish I I I knew more people like that. (laughs) Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. I thank you, Lord, that in you we are free that it's not, a, it's not a question anymore of following any rituals or any laws or any guidelines that makes us acceptable to you or make make us holy. You have made us holy, and you have brought you have bought us freedom with a high price, and we do thank you for that freedom, but we ask for the wisdom of how to use that freedom. We ask for the, that we may use our rights in a right way. That you will help us in our everyday life, in our witness to the world around us, and in the way we treat one another. That all we do, will we do is for the glory of you and for the love of those around us. And that at times we may, have, we may know when to lay aside our freedom in order to help others around us. We'd have that freedom, the freedom to choose, the freedom to choose not to do something as well as the freedom to choose to do something. Help us, we pray. Guide us, we pray. Amen.